let's pray together, shall we? As we get started, we're going to be reading from Daniel chapter 1. You know, we've been in Daniel for about four weeks, uh, and we're we're going to be in Daniel today in a couple of weeks more. Then we'll move on in a different direction. But let's pray together, shall we? As is our custom, look to the screen and let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to talk to you today from our ongoing look in the life of Daniel about forming godly convictions. Convictions is a topic that has generally been lost in the church's effort to be so inoffensive to the world that we've actually begun to look like the world. We train our leaders over the past 30 years or so, we've trained them that the key to success is going to the world on its turf. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus told us to go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. But he said, go into the highways and compel them to come in, not change your life to be like them. And there's a big difference. Convictions is a word that has been lost, and we have learned to laugh and make jokes at some of the old convictions of people in days gone by, we allow things in our churches that I would have never thought would have been allowed in our churches even 20, 30 years ago. So I think one of the things we need to do, and pastors who believe as I do, need to be very careful that we don't create a legalistic structure. We've got to be led by the Spirit, and we've got to have the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, not the sanctifying power of men or tradition. Um, But we do need to form some godly convictions. And we're going to talk about convictions today. Um, You say, well, yeah, but that's kind of, uh, uh, you know, something from the past. We don't want to get a a bunch of rules. We're not talking about rules. We're something, that's dogma. We're talking about something that transcends rules and goes to the very fiber of your being. There's a a movie that I like called Open Range. Uh, Robert Duvall, one of my favorite actors, is in it, and uh, Kevin Costner. And if you saw the movie, you know there's a scene in in a restaurant where they're saying, Duvall and Costner are saying to the businessmen in town, you have a corrupt sheriff. He doesn't keep the law. He perverts the law for his own purposes. And you guys are going to be under this until you learn to stand against it. And one of the men that understood what he was up against said this. He said, I didn't raise my boys to get them killed in a crusade against corruption. And Kevin Costner said something. He said it a little more cowboyish than this. He said, um, well, let let me tell you what he said. He said, there's some things that weigh on a man more than dying. What he was saying to those businessmen is there are things that weigh on a man's mind more heavily than dying. 
He was saying something that is the bedrock of convictions. There are some things that are more important than preserving your life. That's the mark of the overcoming generation of Christians. In Revelation 12, the, the, the proclamation was made, they overcame him, meaning the devil. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by not loving their lives so that they shied away from death. You want to talk about being an overcomer. The third characteristic given in Revelation is that you are living for something that you are willing to die for. Out of that grow convictions. Dorothy Sayers, who was an English uh, detective novelist of the last century, described the age that she thought we were in. And this was back in the 50s. She said, in the world it is called tolerance, but in hell it is called despair. The sin we embrace is the one that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, intervenes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing worth dying for. Here's the way it's described in Daniel. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Loved ones, the church is rediscovering that there is such a thing as holy living. When we study the whole armor of God, we begin thinking of the helmet of salvation. But the biggest piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. And it means that we live life in two ways. Righteousness is both positional, how we stand before God, and how we live before God. I have the armor of God that says I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I, Paul said, am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, uh, yet not I, but it's Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who's, who loved me and gave himself for me. So my, my righteousness, my armor is partly how I stand wearing Jesus' robe of righteousness, but it's also how I live how I live. That's why we are constantly defeated when we think we only stand in righteousness and don't understand that we must live out righteousness. Here's the central truth. Our goal is to be able to model to this present culture that love and truth are not in conflict. The world says Love is greater than truth. A lot of churches say love is greater than truth. Foolishly, pastors in America say, well, God in the Old Testament was the God of wrath. He was the God of truth. But Jesus came, he's the God of mercy, and he's the God of love. But the Bible tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. A conscience informed by truth can be very loving, even though it draws a line and says, I cannot do this. Love can 
and at times must say no. Now, there are three things that I want to point out to you today. Number one, um, we must have deep personal convictions. The day of just treating our devotion to Jesus as an adornment that we wear is over. We must have deep personal convictions, and I'm going to talk about what convictions are formed upon. Number two, we must be willing to embrace an uncomfortable and even an inconvenient obedience. And finally, we have to understand that our circumstances do not hold God hostage. God uh, is not, his strength is not negated because of our weakness. Now let's get started here. I said, first of all, that we must have deep personal convictions. When I was growing up, I was trying to understand, I felt called to preach and I was trying to understand our church doctrine. I went to my pastor who was a relatively uneducated man. I don't know that he, I mean, he may have, I don't know. I don't even know that he finished high school and all of his training for the ministry was through uh, the correspondence of our denomination. In those days, it was called Berean School of the Bible a self-taught man, but a, but a very wise man. And I said, Brother Stevenson, can you help me understand our church's convictions? And this is what he told me. He said, son, he said, convictions aren't held by churches. Now there are some that we all accept and there are some that we all endorse. He said, but convictions are a matter of your heart. And I was confused because I thought he was saying that Scripture was a matter of heart. He says, let me explain this to you. Scripture is the written word of God that we live for and we cannot uh, uh, negotiate with those truths. But convictions are something that have arisen in your heart as you've walked through Scripture. Convictions deal with things that may not have a chapter and verse attached to it that says thou shalt or thou shalt not. And he began to help me understand that we are a church that believes in Scripture and within the, the covering of Scripture, we may have differing convictions about things. Now, let me. this is so important because I do not want to communicate the idea that you have the option to accept or reject Scripture. I don't want to communicate that when the Scripture is clear about something, um, I remember the first time I got into a debate in seminary over whether something was right or wrong. And I said, well, very clearly to the professor, which I also learned you don't argue with professors. Um, but I said, very clearly, Paul said, this is wrong because in, and I quoted two or three scriptures. And, and uh, he said, yes, Paul did say that, but Paul's wrong. And that silenced me because I didn't know how to, I'd never thought about a Bible professor saying, but he's wrong. We're not talking about negating or even marginalizing the truth of Scripture. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away, declares the Lord. Um, but we are talking about how do we live out a righteous life when we don't have a clear chapter and verse about something. I'm not talking about dogma. Dogma for our purposes here, is defined as a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. Whenever the, somebody says this is church dogma, it means that this is true and there is no response to it. There is no debate. The problem is that every book I've read of dogma 
is full of absolute truth and absolute opinion. And, and it's saying that this cannot be changed, this cannot be disputed, this cannot be argued. So we're not a church that embraces, in that sense of the word, dogma. But, but dogma is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I'm saying dogma is not convictions. Daniel did not seek the approval or even the understanding of the Babylonian culture before standing on his convictions. He was pulled out of his culture, put into a new culture, and he did not say, guys, we've got to figure out a way that we can help them understand. There, there, there will be times that you can do that. that. When the crowd says, what does this mean and what shall we do? That's the time to explain. But we must repent of the sin. And today's 30 and 40-something pastors in, in large measure need to repent of the posture that they've taken in, in saying that the Word of God is, is marginal or the Word of God is optional or the Word of God has been misunderstood. And they need to understand that there are some unshakable things that the church must go back to. We, and, and the older generation has done it. In an attempt to make our churches grow, we have presented the idea that the Word of God must be made palatable. It must be made understandable. It must be made enjoyable. Now, the Word of God is palatable. The, the Word of God ought to be enjoyed. It, it's, the Scripture says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But we're doing it from the perspective of a corrupt culture instead of an incorruptible Word. Well, I got more amens than I thought I was going to get today. But let me say this. It's in your notes. The lower the cultural opinion of Scripture, the less sympathy or kindness that will be directed toward the church from the non-Christian community. The biggest battle in America today, culture-wise, the single biggest battle, and, and the world would disagree with this emphatically, but the single biggest battle that we face today is what is the authority by which we live? What is the authority by which we live? And when a culture says, well, there's no absolute truth, then we lose a foundation and we become like the society of Israel during the book of Judges. It says it twice about them. That's how bad it was. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I was watching a tele, uh, television uh, talk show host and she was so angry that a Christian on her show was saying, we believe that the Bible is the absolute standard for living. We believe it is absolute truth. And she got so angry of the things that were being said. She said, there is no absolute truth. And she said, in fact, you can guarantee it. One thing we know for certain, there is no absolute truth. I couldn't believe the, the foolishness of, I'm going to tell you, I, the reason I know there's an absolute truth is because there's an absolute truth that says there's no absolute truth. <laughs> now, I want to say one more thing. We have done a good job of teaching our children and young adults, but I think we're going to need to do a better job of training them. This is something that I've talked to Pastor Mike about, and I've talked to Pastor Bella. So much rests on their shoulders um, to partner with parents to not only teach our children facts, but to train them 
about Christian principles. I was reading through a, the, an ABC book with, with little Jackson last night and, you know, S is for Samson and, and um, you know, K, K is for King and it was all these Bible terms. And the little fella, I, I was trying to teach him the letters and the meaning and he, then he stops and he says, he looks at the picture of Samson with his, in chains, pulling down the temple, the Philistine temple. And he said, who did that to him? And I said, well, there were some bad people. How did he get loose? Well, I didn't want to tell him he didn't get loose from that. It killed him. And I, I wanted to say, Jackson, we're talking about letters. Okay. We're talking about sounds. <laughs> Ka-king. Samson. But you know what I realized? That, that three-year-old boy right now, he already has questions. And I've got to do more as a grandpa. His parents have got to do more. And all of us, as they get older, it's, it's more. You've got to do more than teach facts. You've got to train them in what those facts imply. Now, I think we do that. But I think if we're not careful, we'll leave it to somebody else to explain. So Erwin Lutzer suggests three traps that high school um, and college age adults fall into. By the way, speaking of high school and college age, welcome to our guests that are here for the Experience Weekend, SCSL. We love you. I dressed up for you and wore a tie today. So this is the first thing Lutzer says, unresolved disappointment with God is the reason that many of our uh, young adults fall away. Uh, he says, uh, unresolved disappointment with God, perhaps even anger because God hasn't given them a problem-free existence. Uh, number two, he said they fall away because they've never been taught how to deal with moral pressure, peer pressure, or fall, and then they fall into sexual relationships outside of marriage, and they don't know how to recover from guilt and failure. He says, our young people that love God all through their growing up years are not talked out of faith. They are mocked out of it. And then thirdly, the thing he said is they've been taught but not trained. So I want you to know one of the things we're doing, we've always cared about children. We've always taught our children well and our young adults. But we are making a re renewed effort to teach them not only Bible facts. We want them not only to become biblically literate, but we want them to understand convictions. We want them to understand why we stand when nobody else is standing. And parents, you've got to take up this challenge too. But enough about that. Let me explain what I'm talking about and why convictions are often short-circuited in our lives. Um, and I think all this is in your notes. Uh, we see Scripture, we here at Christian Life, see Scripture as infallible, inerrant, and without contradiction. Now you can go online and find plenty of quote churches or groups that say the Bible is not inerrant, the Bible is not infallible, the Bible's not without contradiction, and then they'll glibly go through and point out contradictions in the Bible. But loved ones, I want to say this, um, they don't understand the purpose of the Bible, they don't understand how, how to study the Bible, 
they don't understand that you can't take a verse and ignore all other verses. The Bible is designed to be uh, um, consumed as a whole unit. And you can't build doctrine. You can't make cases, as we say, out of a verse. We build doctrine out of all the verses. And, and in the world, there is a horrible, horrible lack of, unfamiliar, or, or lack of familiarity with the Bible. And one of the things that we've got to step up here at our church and with our youth, but with grandmas and grandpas and everybody in between, we've got to get back to understanding the whole counsel of God. Uh, you can prove anything. You can make any point. If you look hard enough, you can find a scripture, but you have to balance that truth about this with other facts about that. And we've been shallow with the Bible. We've been shallow with scripture. We've treated the church like rotary and we have a few refrigerator verses that we want to build all our uh, um, life skills and legitimacy upon, but we need to understand that the scripture is infallible and without contradiction and inerrant when interpreted accurately and taken as a whole. It is your responsibility, it is my responsibility to learn the whole counsel of God, not proof texts and not some favorite verses alone. Now, here's where we move from truth to convictions. The scripture is truth. But convictions are made up of clear, the clear truth of scripture along with other conclusions that are precipitated by scripture or have the scripture as their baseline. I want to tell you today that convictions are multi-leveled. They are multi-leveled. We do not put convictions based on principles along with the word of God that is infallible and without error or contradiction. One of my uh, mentors when I was growing up said something and he had such a touch of God upon his life and, and was, was, was the first pastor of a true mega church that I had a chance to really get to know and this is what he said, and he was, he was old line, but you'd go to his church and the power of God was so evident. But this is something he said to me one day in, in, in our little discipleship class. He said, if the Holy, he's talking about convictions. He said, uh, if the Holy, if something in my life grieves the Holy Spirit, then it grieves the Holy Spirit in your life. And now I know you don't have to say amen or oh me right now. I'm, I'm going to explain. That left us with the impression that his convictions were almost the equivalent of scripture. Because if he felt that he grieved the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit was grieved with him, then surely the Holy Spirit's going to be grieved with me. I understood it that way, but it was wrong. And it took me probably, probably, 10 or 12 years to, to work through that and to begin to understand that he was wrong about that. Be he wasn't wrong because saying, well, the Holy Spirit may tell you it's wrong, but me, I can do it and have no problem. No, that's not what, what I'm saying. He did not understand, and I say this with all respect, he's in heaven now, but he did not understand that convictions are multi-leveled and they are layers of convictions. 
And that's what I want to talk to about, talk to you about for a few minutes today. You're going to find, and all I can do is introduce you to it. Uh, you can work on this on your own. I've taught about it in the past, but it's been a long time. There are levels of convictions. Now, I, I, the, the list may overlap. It's not seven clear, you know, it's not like seven corrals that hold their own horses, you know, that sometimes they overlap a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to go from the highest to the lowest. Okay. The highest level of conviction to the lowest level of conviction. Now I've said that scriptural truth is not convictions or convictions may not be scriptural truth, but I'm putting the clear teaching of scripture as the first level of conviction because everything that we have a conviction about must begin there. Um, so the highest level of a conviction that every Christian ought to have is the clear teaching of Scripture. We need to understand the power of thou shalt or thou shalt not. Some of the leading pastors in our nation, maybe three or four years ago, made a big deal that the Ten, that the, the ten Commandments of thou shalt not were not really prohibitions. They were God just saying, I just wish you wouldn't do this. You'd be better off if you wouldn't do that. Now, God is saying that. How many of you know you'd be better off obeying the Ten Commandments than not obeying the Ten Commandments? But those guys had reduced it to a God just wishes you wouldn't do this. It was, uh, but whenever God says thou shalt not, he means thou shalt not. And whenever he says thou shalt, he means thou shalt. Now you've got to understand the context of it. Was, it. was it something that was a command to Israel under the law of Moses? Is it a universal law? Was it, is it something that was the moral law or the ceremonial law or the civil law? I understand that. But you do need to understand this. Every thou shalt not is a strong thou shalt not. But it's also an I love you. I think that's what those guys were trying to say. They were trying to say that God is not just sitting up there saying thou shalt not. But can I tell you what I found out? God sits up there and says thou shalt not. But every thou shalt not is an I love you. Um, for instance, I, and I've had to deal with this all through my ministry. There's always somebody that says, I know the Bible says I shouldn't commit adultery. But I love her. I love him. And God has told me that. Love is never wrong. And love, basically, if I've heard it once, I've heard it, I don't think I'm exaggerating, probably two, two and a half dozen times. God has told me that adultery is wrong for most people, but my situation is different. I'm not loved by my husband the way I ought to be loved. I'm not loved by my wife the way I ought to be loved. And my love, our love is so pure that God says, I'm going to give you a pass because I understand the purity of your heart. No, that is, that is going against the clear teaching of scripture. I must not worship an idol. I will never have permission to worship an idol. Uh, I should make every effort to God, uh, honor God's word. I should make every effort to worship God. I should make every effort to treat others like I want to be treated. The thou shalts and thou shalt nots of God's word are the highest standard by which we live. They are non-negotiable and stay away. Stay away. Let me say it another way. Away from them. Stay Stay away from churches and pastors and Bible teachers and prophets or whoever it is 
that go, that, that the, their mission in life is to contradict the word of God because of exceptions or because they don't, you know, let's say if someone like me, they don't understand. Okay, now here's the second level of conviction. Uh, the clear teaching of scripture is number one. The second level of convictions is what we call or what I call scriptural principles. I can't give you a set of verses that say something clearly, but there are actions or attitudes that are consistently enforced by scripture or rejected by principle though they may not be tied to a clear or detailed command. Um, let me give you uh, an example, and this is the toughest place for, to, to define. There are principles of Scripture that may not, the Lord may not have given us the context of how this manifests itself. Um, I believe a scriptural principle is that I should give those who hurt me the benefit of the doubt. Um, that's, that's what's behind the idea, you know, Jesus, should I forgive someone, uh, you know, uh, uh, up to seven times if they've done me wrong. Jesus says 70 times seven, or he just says unlimited. What Jesus is saying is give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Now I know there comes a time when you can't trust anybody anymore. If, if, if your neighbor uh, makes lewd suggestions toward your little children, you don't owe them a second chance. I, I mean, you don't owe them a second chance. I understand that. Th there, but there are principles. The principle is this. When something's happening that I don't understand, I need to assume there's something going on in somebody's life. I need to give them the benefit of the doubt. I should be a person of sincere prayer. But the Bible doesn't tell me how often I should pray. You say, yes, it does. It says, pray without ceasing. None of us do that because it doesn't mean you can never stop praying. From your waking moment to your sleeping uh, time to go to bed, you must continually be in a state of prayer. None of us do that. Jesus didn't do that. What was behind that was the attitude that says this, let prayer be a consistently repetitive part of your life. Every day you ought to be in prayer. Every situation you ought to be in prayer. It wasn't saying that you must pray 18 hours a day. Um, I should be truthful. Yep, I should be truthful. I should be faithful uh, to share my faith. I should be a faithful giver. These, these are things that are principles that aren't always tied to a chapter or verse. Now, some of those are, I said, like, be truthful. We are to be, we know we're to tell the truth. We know we're to speak the truth in love. We know that. But what I'm saying is that you will be constantly in situations where you can't, you couldn't get a verse to come to your mind that says this, but you know the scripture well enough that you know the principle of scripture is to act this way. Like I said, that's the hardest one to define. It's the hardest one to grasp because it is so close to the clear teaching of Scripture. It is so close to the clear teaching of Scripture. So we are going to be basing our convictions on what the Scripture says. <coughs> and we're going to be basing our convictions, secondly, on the principles, the principles that the Scripture says I ought to live by. I live by a principle that says I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That doesn't tell me, you know, I, I wish that he had put another verse right behind that one 
and said, here are 37 ways to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. He didn't do that. So I have to draw principles from scripture. And, and I'm, I know I may not be good at it. It may not be nearly what I ought to be. But I try to live by principles whenever I have a conflict or a disagreement or I don't know how to handle something. I try to default to the principle that says, how would Jesus treat me if I was in this situation? Um, so there's... there's Scriptural principles. Here's number three. Scriptural inference. Scriptural inference. A scriptural inference. I know this is kind of deep, but are you staying with me okay? Okay. Number three is scriptural inference. This is a conclusion reached on the basis of evidence and reasoning. Some of your convictions are not from the clear-cut Word of God. Some of them are not a scriptural principle that you can clearly identify. Some of your convictions will be based on, as best I can tell, as best I can tell. That's what, uh, how James solved the issue of dietary restrictions, of accepting Gentiles into the church without going through the law of Moses. Acts 15 was so huge. It was so huge. Um, and the reason it was so huge is because they didn't have step one, step two, step three, step four. But he listened to the arguments and he said this, as best we can tell, this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. His words were, my conclusion is this. And he would use the phrase, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The most liberating moment for you and I, the reason we didn't have to become Jews first before becoming Christians is because when all of the verses were presented and all of what God was doing was presented in Acts chapter 15, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the church, he said, look, I've listened to everything and this is my decision. This is what it seems the Lord is saying to the best of my understanding. And at the end of the day, he says, it seems good to the Holy Spirit. It seems good to us. This is where we're going to go. <coughs> Another example. Justin, could you get my water for me? I don't know why I forget that every week because I know I'm going to need it. Thank you. Uh, another example is baptismal modes. Some of my dear brothers and sisters, their mode of baptism is sprinkling. They will just sprinkle or, or in, maybe as an infant, they will be uh, sprinkled or, or, or poured. They're sprinkling, there's pouring. And then we are a church that believes in immersion. We, our baptismal um, Mode comes from the Baptist, the tradition of the Baptist, uh, you know, of, of full immersion. And um, I, I, I believe I, when, when, you, when you read the scripture, the scripture does not say thou shalt fully immerse in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, use of the word uh, uh, that, that was translated baptism it infers that, it implies that, it's, it's used of something being put in dye. You say, well, that just shows right there. You put something in dye, it's got to go under. Yeah, but you got to be careful because you also had to leave it till it took on the full color. Um, <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of doctrine we can create from that. Um, it, it, 
I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable in saying I am not uncomfortable with people that sprinkle. I'm not uncomfortable with people that pour. We celebrate infant baptism because that's a sign the family is following the Lord and going to raise their children. You say, well, yeah, but that baby knows nothing. Well, neither did the Jewish male when he was circumcised. In fact, that's probably why they did it then, is so he would not know what was, was going on. Um, it was symbolic of saying, this is the way my child's going to be raised. That's what, that's what infant baptism is. I believe in immersion, but I would never tell somebody that's been sprinkled or poured over or baptized. I would never tell them that your baptism doesn't matter. As best as I can tell, we will baptize with immersion because we think that the inference of Scripture is the idea of, of immersion. But I will not go to war with the Catholics. I will not go to war with the Episcopal Church. I will not go to war with the Lutherans over something like this. And um, it's, it's what we call a scriptural inference. Eschatological views. Some are pre-trib, uh, believe a pre-trib rapture. Some believe a mid-trib rapture. Some believe a post-trib rapture. There are, you know, there are so many eschatological views on the return of the Lord, the rapture, the return of Christ, the reign of Antichrist, and all of them have some validity. We, we have been raised to make everybody else sound stupid, but it's not stupid. I know what I believe. I know what I lean into. I know what I think is the, is the best interpretation of Scripture. But I want to tell you, I, I appreciate Jack Hayford. He said, after exhausting study and three books written, here's my eschatology in a nutshell. When he comes, I go. <laughs> a, a, an author that has been at our church, known worldwide, I asked him one time, I, I got to know him a little bit. I said, just what's your eschatological view? He said, well... He said, first of all, I got to tell you, I know that I have been right at least once. And I said, what do you mean? He said, because I believed everything at least once. So I've been right at least once. And I said, well, when, when do you think you were right? He said, I have no clue. He said, but I know Jesus is coming and we better be ready. Okay. There are things that you don't have to fall on your sword over. You celebrate people of like precious faith. Uh, I'm not going to fall out of fellowship with somebody because they disagree on the time of the rapture or they disagree on, on the nature of Antichrist. I'm, I'm going to celebrate our commonalities and I'll preach what I think are scriptural inferences. Okay, here's number four. Okay, now we're talking about forming convictions. The clear teaching of scripture, scriptural principles, Below that, it's not strong enough to be a principle, but it's inferred in Scripture. Scripture infers something. Um, as best I can tell, this is true. Um, uh, I, I, let me give you one more example of scriptural inference when it comes to church government. I have a friend that says it's very clear that the New Testament teaches three times types of church government. And he names the three references that I, I mean, that's, I was doing my doctoral dissertation on it and he named the three major points that were in my dissertation. He said, so it's clear, this is permitted, this is permitted, this is permitted. My view was not that these were three different operations or three different types of church government. I think they were three pictures of how a common church government worked out. 
uh, you know, who's right or who's wrong. Well, I know I'm right, but no, I'm teasing. I don't know. He, he made a convincing argument for his view. And after I let him read my dissertation, he said, this is, he said, this is a convincing position that you've presented. The fact of the matter is we're not going to fall out of fellowship with people over church government. We just do the best we can. We commit to a church government structure that we think is best. And we let others settle that between them and the Lord. Okay. Now here's number four. You're going to have to listen quick. Tradition, tradition. You say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not into tradition. Jesus condemned the tradition of men. Jesus condemned the tradition of men that violated the law of God or the making of traditions that put themselves on equality with God's word. It might surprise you that Paul told the church at least twice to honor the traditions that had been given to them. When they were in, in dispute over an issue, Paul said, all I can tell you is we don't have any tradition like you're talking about in the churches of God. So tradition plays a role. Now, tradition may be circumstantial. Tradition may be temporary or adjustable, depending on circumstances. I may live by a standard in a place depending on the locale. Because I can tell you what is permissible in Southern California is, is not going to be permissible in West Florida or South Carolina. Um, it may be, traditions may be based on a custom or even on denominational traditions. Denominations need to understand that it's okay for them to have traditions. Nothing wrong with that, but don't slip them over into the Word of God. I went to school with a young lady. I won't call her name because it, it, it would be embarrassing to her. But she, and my wife knows this. No, there's nothing I'm trying to hide or confess to. She's one of the just most beautiful girls, just natural, beautiful girls that I had ever seen in my life. I, 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 I haven't seen her in years, but I, I'm assuming she's still that way. Um, she was one of those girls that if she put on makeup and got a just perfectly applied makeup, um, it, it, it would not, it would not make her more beautiful. I mean, she might go for on a scale of one to 10, she might've gone from a 12 to a 13, but she was just absolutely beautiful. And when she put on makeup, she looked like she was there for a photo shoot. Now, her personality wasn't that way. She was not, she was not a sensual person by nature or a, or a flirt, not in any way. She was, she, was just a, she was just a beauty. And when she wore makeup, she, was, she could be going to play basketball and would wear makeup. I mean, she was just that kind of girl. I saw her years later. She was married. She married one of my friends. I'm married. I saw her at... Uh, a general counsel, and uh, we began to talk a little bit. And um, I, um, the, the course of the conversation went to, to everybody so dressed up and everybody going to general counsel and looking their best. And, you know, now you go to general counsel, you, very few people wear a coat and tie or anything like that. It's very casual. But in those days, it was, it, it was a fashion statement. One of the ways you knew you were anointed was to have a coat and tie on. And... Um, I, I didn't, I mean, her husband was there. I didn't say anything inappropriate, but I said, you know, I said, uh, I, I would have thought that if you wore makeup any place, it would have been to general counsel. I said, this is, this is makeup heaven. 
And I said, and you, you're not wearing makeup. And we joked about it a little bit. And she said, oh, it's because of where we're pastoring. I said, what? And her husband said, yeah, we pastor a church and I won't say where. He said, there are several things that will get you to hell fast. One is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Two is wearing makeup. <laughs> and and I, I said, um, and I noticed her hair was a lot longer. You, you didn't cut your hair either if you were a woman. If you were a man, you better cut your hair regularly. And uh, I, I, was, I was amazed. I, I thought, here's this woman that this was such a part of her life. And she's, she's laid it aside. And I, I, I thought, wow, she's doing this for the Lord. And, and um, I, saw, I saw them two years later at general council. And she was, she, she said, yeah, she said, I never wear makeup. We never do this. We never, I never wear pants because part of the early Pentecostal tradition is that uh, women didn't wear pants or, or pantsuit or anything like that. Um, because in the Old Testament, it says that a woman was not to wear that which pertains to a man or a man not to wear that which pertains to a woman. It was talking about sexual crossovers, not, not that a woman couldn't wear pantsuits. Um, but I see her at the next council. Her hair is cut. She's got an exquisite makeup job. She's wearing her jewelry. She had taken off her jewelry and she was wearing pants. And I, I, I looked at her and I said, what is going on? I said, the last time you would have been sent to hell for doing this. And she looked at me and she smiled and she said, we changed churches. Now, loved ones, some of you are getting so upset and been out of shape saying, well, we shouldn't do that and we shouldn't compromise. Oh, that's not what scripture says. She, she, you know what that, that young lady said? She said, I can wear makeup, I can wear pants, I can wear jewelry, I can do all of that. But the culture we're in, I don't have to do that. This is their tradition. She could have said, this is what the Bible says. You know, in Peter, it says that the beauty of a woman should not be the wearing of apparel or the braiding of the hair or the putting on of gold. I grew up in a culture that said women don't wear jewelry. Women don't uh, do fancy things with their hair because it's worldly. Uh, but they never talked about the part that said the putting on of apparel, you know. Um, you know, and I thought, well, if we shouldn't wear jewelry and if we shouldn't wear makeup, shouldn't fix our hair, probably shouldn't wear clothes either. Uh, that was just my, my line of thing. But you know, you know what she was saying? She says, this is the tradition of the church and the state we're in. It wasn't, their, it wasn't their tradition. It wasn't what they grew up in. But they went to a place where that was the tradition. And they never preached the tradition as the law of God. But this is what my friend and her husband said. For us to make a difference in this community we need to pay attention to the traditions. We need to pay attention to the traditions. And that's why I say that convictions based on tradition uh, may be circumstantial, may be temporary, may be adjustable, um, depending on locale, customs, or denominational traditions. Let's go on to number five. I, I hope I'm not confusing you. Number five, this is uh, the next to the lowest level. Not that it means it's unimportant, but this is where we get further and further away 
from the clear teaching of Scripture, and it's matters of conscience. Matters of conscience. There are things that I am not free to do, and what I mean by that is I am not comfortable to do them. I'm not comfortable doing them. Uh, people say, well, the Bible doesn't say you can't do that. That's not what this is about. What this is about, what this is about is my comfort zone. I'm not, I know I'm free to do this, but I'm not comfortable to do this. And that is where it depends on a very mature relationship with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that later. But sometimes we have convictions based on a promise that we made or a past experience or issues from our upbringing. It can be good or bad. It can be good or bad. Um, sometimes, especially if we come from, from um, a, a, a very conservative church background, we were told that this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Um, and I want to tell you, for years, for years, for years after I got out on my own, I was as nervous as a cat in that room full of rocking chairs on Sunday because I was told you don't do anything but worship God and rest on Sunday. And so I would have never thought of taking a garbage out. God forbid would I ever mow the lawn on a Sunday afternoon. Um, and, and the list goes on and on. Um, I, I, because of the way I was raised, I was very uncomfortable doing things for years, for years. Now, eventually I began to realize the true meaning of Sabbath and what Sabbath was about and what Sabbath wasn't about. And, and I was able to say, okay, I can do this. If, if the ox gets in the ditch, I can do this. If I have a flat tire on Sunday, I don't have to wait till Monday to change it. But there are other things that I know I have freedom to do, but my conscience says you don't need to do this. There's a man in our church, and I'm going to wrap it up here, but there's a man in our church that I felt so sorry for him. He was such a good man, and I would call his name, but I, I wouldn't bring embarrassment to him in any way. I know he's in heaven now, but I wouldn't want to insult his family. We would go to church on Sunday, and I would sit there near him sometimes, and he would have a long sleeve shirt with the French cuffs, you know, that require cufflinks, <coughs> and I noticed he never had cufflinks and I felt so sorry for him. I knew they lived in a housing project and to me, I thought if they live in a housing project, they must be poor. And, and I guess generally speaking, that's true. A lot of our people lived in subsidized housing, so they were probably lower middle class. I don't know. And I just felt for him. I, I felt for him. And I asked my mom one Sunday if I could give my cufflinks to brother so-and-so because um, I didn't wear them often. I just wore them at Easter and on my birthday because we had a tradition on your birthday, you would give the number of coins that reflect your age and they would count it out and people had to guess whose birthday it was. And boy, it was exciting to give him nine pennies and you're sitting there in your cufflinks. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, we got somebody who's nine. And then you'd sit there while all the people guessed who it was. And when it came to you, you'd raise up your arms and, you know, yes, I'm nine. 
uh, I was so disillusioned when I turned 10 and my mom gave him a dime instead of, and he got up there and he said, hey, we got a birthday today, 10. And I was, (laughs) that's the only time I wore my cufflinks. So I said, can I give them to brother so-and-so? And my mom said, why do you want to do that? And I explained to her, and she said, let's go to him and ask him. She said, why he doesn't wear cufflinks? And to make a long story short, it was a matter of conscience to him. This is his story. He said, I never had anything growing up. I, I, he said, my wife and I have been married X number of years. I don't even have a wedding ring. Never been able to buy her a wedding ring. He said, the first nice thing I've ever been able to afford was a pair of cufflinks. He said, and I noticed for two or three Sundays when Brother Stevenson would be preaching, he said the light from the window would catch my cufflink and reflect. And he said, and I'd catch myself thinking how beautiful they were and how they reflected. He said, I even caught myself reflecting them against the wall. He said, so as a matter of conscience, I gave them away and said, Lord, I'll never have anything in my life that distracts me from your word again. Now, did, did everybody have to get rid of their cufflinks? No, it was a matter of his conscience. Um, and I realized he didn't need my cufflinks, but I realized he had something I needed. And that was a deep respect for God's word. And here's the last thing, um, a personal sensitivity. It may be because of a personal weakness. Um, I, I was raised that... Uh, um, you could go into a restaurant if it has a bar, as long as you don't drink from the bar. My dad would never let us sit near the bar because he didn't want someone to see and misunderstood. He was an elder in the church. And um, my mom was the music director and Sunday school teacher. And so they said, we're not going to sit anywhere near the bar, but you can go into the restaurant. But we had people in our church that would never go into a restaurant with a bar. And this is their reason. Some just said, well, it doesn't look good. But others said, I'll never forget this man saying this. He was the worldling in our church. He had tattoos and we didn't have any tattoos in our church. So we knew he had been to hell and back, you know, because he had tattoos. Then, uh, Then when things loosened up, I realized how many folks we had in our church that were from the Navy and we were tattooed everywhere, you know. But he said... We, we had an appreciation banquet. We're going to a restaurant, but it had a bar. And he asked my dad, he says, Brother Cliff, could we please not go there? And my dad said, sure. I, I didn't know that it was offensive to you. He said, it's not offensive to me. He said, but I live such a wicked life, so consumed with alcohol. He said, the sight and smell. He said, I don't trust myself. That was a personal sensitivity. He wasn't trying to put his conviction on anybody else. Maybe just precautions to avoid unnecessary battles. I've, I've told you, you know, when I was a youth pastor, I was laughed at because I, we didn't have pool parties and I don't attend pool parties. It's not because I think there's a verse that says you can't gather at a swimming pool with people of the opposite sex. It's just, I'm a visual person and this may embarrass some of you. I don't want to have an image of any of our ladies in a swimsuit when I'm trying to preach the righteousness of God. I don't need that image to deal with. It's not that I think they're evil. It's not that I think they're wrong. You say, well, pastor, you're just full of lust. Yeah, I know. And all of you are too. (laughs) 
We all are. So I don't go. It's not because I think the people that do it are evil. It's just an unnecessary battle that I don't want to fight. When I took my kids to the beach, we were usually down away from everybody. Um, unless I was the only adult, then I wanted to be close enough to people. If one of my kids had a problem and I couldn't help them, I wanted somebody to be able to help them. Took my kids on vacation. We'd go to the swimming pool. I didn't say, kids, you can't go swimming. That's a den of iniquity down there. <laughs> no, I'd take my kids to the pool. But I tell you what I learned. I learned to position my chair so that I was watching my kids and not everybody else. That's called personal sensitivity. Now, you say, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying that we must be willing to embrace an uncomfortable, inconvenient obedience. Hear me out. Hear me out. I'm saying that we need to start living our lives according to the principles of clear scriptural teaching. We also need to understand the principles of scripture. May not be a thou shalt not or a thou shalt, but there are principles that we follow. We need to understand that in tough decisions, we need to understand what scripture seems to be inferring. Um, we need to pay attention to traditions. We need to pay attention to our conscience. And we need to understand that personal sensitivities may be for your own good and the Holy Spirit may even be generating those personal sensitivities to keep us out of trouble. Now, it's easy to have convictions until they clash with culture. Daniel could have closed his windows to pray. You know, when they, what got him in the lion's den is they couldn't get Daniel any other way. So they said, we'll make a law that says you can't pray to anybody but the king for X number of days. But Daniel, as his custom was, three times a day, he would open his windows toward Jerusalem and he would pray. Daniel could have said, well, you know, I'm going to close my windows, pull the curtains. He could have taken a prayer sabbatical and said, well, you know, I've prayed so much. I've got some vacation time built up. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to live by the convictions I've always lived by. Um, and, and this was definitely a conviction. There was not a command that you had to open your windows toward Jerusalem and pray. But that was his life. Daniel could have eaten the king's meat if his challenge failed. He could have said, well, Lord, I gave you a chance to bail me out and you didn't. We are not to manifest a belligerent spirit. Paul clearly warns against us, against that, telling us to correct with meekness the offense of others and view them considering their weakness and our own weakness. We avoid judgmentalism and harshness. Yet at the same time, we must contend for what is right. We must endeavor to positively affect our culture through all legitimate means. We have been extraordinarily blessed in America. And this is what I ask you to do. This sounds like I'm coming out of left field, but this is, a, this is something directly connected to what I'm saying. We have been extraordinarily blessed in America, and I ask all of you to subscribe to the Voice of the Martyrs or websites like it and see what's happening to the Church of Jesus all around the world. We're getting mad over surface issues and frivolous things when the church in so many places of the world is going through a hell on earth. I want to tell you, we have passed the time when there was a respect for Christianity. We have passed the time when there was even a rejection 
of Christianity. And we are entering the time when there is a ridicule of Christianity. We have to be ready to stand without being belligerent and hateful. And we need to teach our children how to stand in a culture that will put them to shame. How do we wrap this up? Our circumstances do not hold God hostage. Our weakness does not negate his strength. A lot of people, their theology is like letter A. We win. Then they move from that to, okay, an acknowledgement. We win. But you need to move to the exclamation point. We win. Then the double exclamation point. Hallelujah. We win. Then the triple exclamation point. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. We really win. In Romania, this happened. I've, I've got reports of it happening in Romania and in Czechoslovakia. After 45 years of communist oppression, when the, when the Iron Curtain began to fall and, and the Soviet Union began to dismantle and Christianity was allowed freedom in Romania and Czechoslovakia, the leading church in both of those cities, in order to celebrate, this is the only thing, the simple thing that they did, they both had a sign outside their church, over their church sign, that says, the Lamb wins. The lamb wins. Loved ones, I want to tell you, the lamb wins. The lamb wins. We, yes, we are entering a time when we have got to get off of our high horse of anger at the world saying, you're not living right. And we may need to ask the question, are we living right? And we may need to understand that we have got to love America back to a position of loving God. That's the next step. And it's going to come when we learn to take our stand and to do what's right. Father, thank you for helping us today. I pray I've not been too tedious or too technical. But Father, help us to understand convictions. This isn't a burdensome thing. You said my yoke is easy and my burden is light. and We believe that. Father, whenever the yoke, whenever the burden seems heavy, it's almost always because we're doing it the wrong way or, or we've gotten out of balance in something. So we ask you to bring us back into balance. Help us like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, help us to understand that we need to love the culture or the people of the culture, but stand for what our hearts and our book and the spirit tell us is right. That's such a big step for so many people. Others have been doing it all their lives. They've always done this. But I pray that you would help us all. Lord, I, Lord we're trying to get from Sears to Dillard's. We're trying to get everybody along the way and have nobody left behind. But Father, we're, we're not going to do it by our own intellect. We're not going to do it by our innovation. It's going to happen when we humble ourselves before the Lord and you begin to pour out your spirit upon a people of conviction again. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. If you were in Brown Chapel, the pastor there will tell you um, how to get connected with a prayer group. Pastor Justin has mentioned it here. If you'll go to these doors, to my right and your left, there are prayer teams that will be waiting for you there. And whether you're at Brown Chapel here or, or on the air, you know, listening to live stream or maybe listening to it later, um, there, there 
is a number that's on your screen that will connect you to prayer counselors with our church. Now, if you listen, if you're listening to this after the live stream, I mean, in other words, you're listening to it later, that number still works and you tell them what you're listening to and they'll connect you with somebody that can help you. Most importantly, if you want to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, call that number or visit one of the prayer teams because God loves you so much and He has His hand. What an honor to be a part of the church of the Lord Jesus in this generation. Like Esther, we've been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. Stand with me, would you please? Thank you. Thank you for being here. God bless you. I love you so much. Thank you for being here.